Good morning. Today's scripture reading is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 60, verses 18 to 22, also found in the Pew Bible on page 724. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of sorrows will end. Then will all your people be righteous and they will possess the land forever. They, will, they are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands for the display of my splendor. The least of you will become a thousand the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will do this swiftly. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you open our hearts and minds as we hear your word brought to us by our pastor. I pray that we will, your seeds be sown in our lives as we go through this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much, Esther. Let's just pray one more time. Lord, make us lower that you may be exalted. Let us glory in your Son, Jesus, and take him as our example. Lord God, may we take to heart the words of Paul in Philippians to consider others better than ourselves. Hear our prayer this day, our God, and give us ears to listen and hearts that are receptive. In Jesus' strong and powerful name, I pray. Amen. Only the humble hope. Only the humble hope. The proud chase phantoms. That's the main point that I want to make today. Only the humble hope. The proud chase phantoms. Well, with that sober thought, I'm going to start with an even more sober warning. The word that I have to share today is dangerous. It's dangerous for me personally because the arts community, which I love and among whom I work and socialize with day to day and with whom I make most of my living, while it is very indulgent about almost everything else, will quickly reject and dismiss the word I'm going to bring. And when the word gets out, my community will be utterly unforgiving of the bearer of that word. It's a dangerous word for any of you who accept it and attempt to live by it. Depending on your situation, it may not be dangerous just yet, but soon living this word will set you at odds from many of the people you love most dearly, from some of your close family and friends, and from most of your neighbors and co-workers. 
accepting this word, living this word, acting on this word, even doing so kindly and gently will make you an object of suspicion and scorn, even of hatred. And because this is not an easy word to preach or to hear, much less to act on, I'm bringing it to you at the end of the year when you have the summer months to think it over, to search the scriptures, to pray about it, and to be convicted by it. A couple of days ago, a friend shared with me a picture he took this week. Many of you will recognize this place. It's a very prominent building in Winnipeg. And for those of you who are not able to see the slide, in front of this building, a bunch of flags are flying. And right in the front is the Canadian flag, and behind are the flags of the provinces. But high above all the rest is this flag. Now, if you haven't been out much lately, this is the pride flag. More specifically, it's what's called the progress pride flag. Now, although the rainbow as a symbol of hope was appropriated as the emblem of pride culture 45 years ago, this rainbow flag has changed numerous times. The original was designed with eight colorful bands, and each one of those bands signified or symbolized a value or a, uh, something that was very important to the pride movement. And now I'm quoting from the website of, the, uh, of a very um, sympathetic um, uh, institution, the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. At the top was pink for sex. And next came red for life, orange for healing, yellow for sunlight, green for nature, turquoise for magic, indigo for serenity, and violet for spirit. A year later, the pink and turquoise stripes were dropped owing to a shortage of pink fabric at the time, which was 1979. Now, there have been many competing versions of the pride flag, but the trend, as the groups that pride claims have proliferated, has been to add more and more stripes. Now, according to the website Queer in the World, the designer of the Progress Pride flag moved the trans flag stripes and marginalized community stripes to the flag's hoist, where they formed a new arrow shape. The arrow leads to the right to confer forward movement while purposely being along the left edge, pointing to the fact that much progress still needs to be made, end quote. The progress pride flag, in other words, sums up very well what pride culture is all about. It's a potent symbol of a worldview that claims for itself the momentum of history. In other words, just as Isaiah saw Zion and predicted a new people and a new heavens and a new earth, pride sees itself as the harbinger of a bright future. From its choice of the rainbow to its progressive view of history in which humanity is ultimately remade, pride colonizes Christian thought forms. In other words, although its leaders mostly distance themselves from it, pride is a direct descendant of liberal Christianity, a distorted Christianity which, like Catholicism before it, but in its own way, treats the Bible like a goodie bag of inspirational stories and sayings, not the authoritative word of God. And it is those from the dominant strain of Christianity. Earlier that was Catholics, but over the last 200 centuries, or sorry, over the last two centuries, 
it was also the majority of Protestants, this dominant strain of Christianity twisted the gospel to fall in line with the broad worldview of nearly every human being who has ever walked the face of the earth. And this version of Christianity, in this version of Christianity, this anti-gospel, the Bible is just another resource to exploit as we remake the world in our own image. To be sure, we have not had the ideology of pride culture for 200 years, but it is, pride culture is an extension of a project that has been going on for at least 200 years. Listen to the words of the man who coined the term gay pride. When he was recently questioned about his choice of the word pride, since pride is traditionally thought of as the deadliest sin, he sought to differentiate between sinful pride and a respectable, even a Christian pride. He said, oh, no, not that kind of pridefulness, more like self-esteem. He went on, the poison was shame. And the antidote is pride. A lot of people were conflicted internally, he said, and, and didn't know how to come out and be proud. And that's how the movement was most useful, because they thought, maybe I should be proud. The poison is shame. The antidote is pride. Doesn't that sound good? Nobody wants to be ashamed. Shouldn't we be proud of who we are? Of what we have accomplished? Although we might not use Craig Schoonmaker's exact language, I'm guessing that all of us from time to time have quietly affirmed in our own hearts, yeah, of course I should be proud of who I am, of what I have made of myself. Why be ashamed of that? That's just not healthy. Well, this is the common sense reaction, the gut feeling of nearly every human who has ever walked the face of the earth. But that very innocent-sounding sentiment contains the seeds of our own destruction, as we have found 200 years onto this project, and our world is falling apart, not only culturally, but environmentally as well, militarily, in horrific ways. We react with hostility to anything or anyone who makes us feel ashamed. And we feel that that's reasonable. But how many of us have deeply understood what the Bible has to say about shame? Is shame the poison? Is pride the antidote? all over the Bible, the writing is on the wall. God chose what is low and despised in the world, Paul says, to shame the strong. Paul says God chose what is low and despised in the world to shame the strong. Well, that certainly doesn't fit very well with a message that sees a bad self-image as the problem and a good self-image as the solution. But of course, this is the majority view, isn't it? Practically everyone would agree that not to take pride in yourself, in your family, in your culture, in your country makes you kind of pitiful. Because 
Even people who don't have much to be proud of generally find something in this world to associate with. That's why the Bible calls it, incidentally, worldliness. This is the anti-gospel of pride culture. To feel ashamed is to be poisoned. To feel proud is to be healed. To state that in its most efficient form, shame equals poison, pride equals antidote. How neatly this simple formula fits with every human aspiration and endeavor. And I'm calling this the anti-gospel, this universal human message. And that's not just because it sounds insulting. It's because the message of the gospel, the true gospel, in other words, God's good news to humanity as opposed to humanity's ideas about itself, has things completely the other way around. The gospel says, the poison is pride. The antidote is shame. The poison is pride. The antidote is shame. I wonder if that makes you feel uncomfortable. I hope it does because I don't want to be the only one. It made me uncomfortable when I wrote those words down, when I made that slide. And partly that's because I am, like everyone else, profoundly prideful. Pride runs so deep in us that we can't help but bristle when we feel shame. But also, I was uncomfortable writing it because it's incomplete. The gospel doesn't stop with shame. Shame is where it starts. But if all you ever feel is shame, then you have not yet understood the gospel. I will say that one more time. If all you ever feel is shame, then you have not yet understood the gospel. Because shame is not the destination. Shame is the means. Shame is the vehicle that brings us to the end of ourselves beyond what we can handle on our own. Shame can also drive us to despair, of course. But despair is not actually a place beyond ourselves. Despair is a retreat, a move inwards. To be caught in despair is like being caught in a house of mirrors. You just keep on reflecting just how unhappy and ashamed you are of yourself. But all the time you resent how you're feeling because you can't help thinking that I didn't do anything to deserve this. Despair is just pride by another name. To indulge despair is inherently selfish because it is a trap that you have made and that you lock yourself into, a tiny room that only you control. So when shame drives us to the brink of despair, our only legitimate option is to turn to God. That is the meaning of repentance. To turn. To turn to God. Pride is the poison. Shame is the antidote leading to repentance and faith. Repentance is turning to God. And speaking of which, let's now turn to our passage, which is on page 724 in your pew Bibles. And I would encourage you to open your Bibles to that page. Um, We'll be flipping back a little bit and forth just in that page in the chapter before. As Mark and I have been saying for the past month, 
Isaiah chapter 60 is a depiction of Zion. When you see the word you in chapter 60, you is the personification of Zion. We've highlighted the fact that Zion is much more than just the historical city of David. Zion is an eternal spiritual reality, the everlasting city of the Son of David, Jesus Christ, which includes all the people of God throughout the ages. And as I tried to point out last week, while chapter 60 is certainly a glimpse ahead to the end of time as we know it, and today's passage obviously makes reference to that as we were listening to it, by relating this vision to us through Isaiah, God is also encouraging people out of every time to draw principles for the challenge that they face in the present. The chapter is a glimpse ahead to the end of time, but the reason that God related this vision to us through Isaiah is so that we can draw out principles for the challenges that we face right now. It isn't only pie in the sky when you die, it is for right now. As I said last week, Isaiah is primarily concerned throughout his book with sin and what can be done about it. And as I said, there is precisely nothing that we can do about sin. But God has done all. What I didn't talk about much last week is the function that these last chapters play in the book, the last 11 chapters to be specific, which chapter 61 is the exact center of, so chapter 60 is leading up to the climax of this last section. And, and this last section is a bit of a puzzle for some because in the middle section, chapter 53, the famous chapter with the suffering, suffering servant, Sin is dealt with decisively by God himself in the form of the suffering servant who we know to be Jesus Christ. But in chapter 56, and 57, and 58, and especially 59, it is clear that sin is still around. Sin is still operative. And as I said, chapter 59 lays it out most clearly. If you just flip back one page to page 722 in your pew Bibles, um, you can just scan through that chapter. At the beginning of chapter 56, God calls his people once again to live a life of holiness, a life of righteousness and of justice. But despite the fact that in verse 1 of chapter 59, he reminds us that his arm is not too short to save us, still our sins have hidden his face from us. There is this gulf between us and God. He goes on to talk about all the little lies we tell ourselves and the webs we weave, all these falsehoods that justify the blood that we spill. Until, if you skip down to verse 15, he concludes that things have gotten so bad in this world that truth is nowhere to be found. And, who, and even more than that, Whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. In other words, in our world, reality is so distorted that anyone who simply tries to tell the truth, anyone who tries to turn away from evil and to do good, puts a target on his or her back. But if you keep going in that same verse, God determines to save his people once 
and for all. And at the end of chapter 59, he covenants with them to put his word and his spirit in their mouths forever through this other figure that we won't talk about today, who is the divine warrior, who is another, per, another pre-incarnate vision of the Son, Jesus. And it's at this point that Zion is called to wake up, arise, and shine, for your light has come. Because Zion is God's purpose for the world. Zion is God's plan to accomplish his purpose in the world. Zion is God's home. By faith, we know that he is in us. By faith, we are in him through all eternity. And one day, that faith will become sight. God's spiritual reality will invade our material reality. Well, last week, we looked at the redemption of Zion. That was starting in verse 15. The key word we found there was the word instead. Instead of this, God brings that. Instead of the disappointment of the everyday, God comes and brings what is special and holy. God makes his people beautiful in every way. And this week, that structure only intensifies. And so does that sense of God's presence along with his unmistakable involvement. Take a look, starting in verse 18. Three times in verse 18, and then in verse 19, and again in verse 20, there's a change that's traced out for us. Before, we had the word instead. Now we have the phrase, no longer. No longer. If you think about it, this means that the reality that was being described is being thrown more clearly into the future. Since what's described is obviously still with us. Let me explain what I mean. No longer will we hear violence, ruin, and destruction. Do we hear violence? ruin and destruction in the world? Yes. No longer will the sun and moon be our daylight and our night light. Well, obviously God hasn't taken over for them just yet. No longer will the sun set, verse 20. No longer will the moon wane. Well, actually, in an ugly, changing world, I can kind of take comfort that such things as the phases of the moon and sunsets are still happening. So what do these no longer promises mean? No longer violence, ruin, and destruction. No longer sun and moon. No longer setting and waning of the sun and moon. It's almost impossible to hold a clear picture of that in your mind. How can a human, how, how can any earthly creature live in a world where the sun and the moon are always there? And yet they're not called upon to shine. It's almost as impossible to imagine as a world with no violence, no ruin, no destruction. But whatever it will look or feel like, we can trust that it will be perfect. And somehow more spectacular than any vista of pink and orange and gold, more haunting than the silvery sliver of the waning moon. On the other hand, not all these promises are for the future. We can already live in a reality where we feel total security because we are assured of our salvation. Our walls can be salvation now. We can know with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
We can enter Zion as we sing and do everything else to the glory of God. Our gates, the gates of Zion, are praise now. These are things that we do not have to wait to experience. And by the same token, we know that God is already, for us, the everlasting light. In his light, we walk with confidence. Next to him, for us, the dark, the moon is dark and dull. Next to the Lord, the sun is a mere shadow. And transfixed by him, these great heavenly eyes stop and stare and reflect his light. In his everlasting light, we see through them. We see through them and the idols of every culture. Since the sun and the moon have been idolized by every culture in history. But in the light of God, we see through those idols. So that no matter how lovely anything may be, no matter how pervasive like the sun, no matter how essential to life on this planet, no other symbol of intelligence or strength, of wisdom or beauty, no music, no poetry, no literature, no science, no technology, no company, no government, no system can ever match the greatness and the goodness of our God who provides for us everything that we need to live in perfect perfected beauty and contentment. And then, no matter how badly our lives are going, even when it seems like the sun has withdrawn forever, or the moon's light has been gathered into the inky blackness of night, when our lives are full of sorrow, we can know that our everlasting light, our God is still there, still present, still a beacon of hope and truth, still shining on us, still shining in us, still shining through us. And we can look forward to that strange and wonderful day when neither the sun and the moon nor happiness and joy will ever go away again. When all our sadnesses will be nothing but a distant memory. Let's look at the text again. If verses 18 through 20 intensify the promises of the verses that came before them, 13, sorry, 15, 16, 17. If they claim, verses 18 through 20, if they claim with even more certainty that God is always with us, that God is always in control, then the final two verses in this chapter go even farther. Because without these last two verses, Zion could be proud of herself. Zion could be a pride culture. Because everything that has come before in this chapter, the exaltation of Zion and the accolades, the gifts and the redemption, even that inspiring challenge to arise and shine, could conceivably be appropriated by someone seeking a biblical justification to take pride in yourself. But these last two verses should be summed up in this way. The meek will inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. Well, that should ring some bells. Because this is exactly how Jesus did sum up these verses. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This phrase of his from Matthew 5, verse 5, in the Beatitudes, inherit the earth, are the exact same words of Isaiah 60, 21, that you read in the Septuagint 
the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was the most common text in Jesus' day. So what I mean is that where we have in our NIV, they will possess the land forever, the early Greek text, the Septuagint, has they will inherit the earth forever. Who will inherit the earth? Well, according to Isaiah, it's the people of Zion. And according to Jesus, it's the meek. Putting them together, Jesus is describing the people of Zion as the meek. Jesus says that the people of Zion are the meek. And Jesus' summary of Isaiah 60, 21, and 22 is in perfect harmony with these verses. Not surprising, I would hope. The purpose, the people of Zion are, what does it say? Righteous. The beginning of verse 21. They are righteous. But they're a mere seedling in the hands of God. They are a fragile remnant, always seemingly a whisper away from extinction, entirely dependent on God to plant them, to establish them, to protect them, and to multiply them. And the final word here in these verses is the same one that we find all over the Bible. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I will do it. Not you. I am Yahweh. I will do it. The humble can hope. The humble do hope because it is God himself who guarantees their future. The proud chase phantoms. They have no hope. They have no future. This meekness, this seeming insignificance that verses 21 and 22 describe is nothing that pride culture wants to have anything to do with. And when I say pride culture, I am not limiting the term to what is being celebrated this month. Because the dominant culture in every time and place in this fallen world is always a pride culture. The dominant culture in every time and place in our fallen world is and always has been and always will be until Jesus returns, a pride culture. Pride is idolatry. Pride is idolatry that for a time can bind any group of people together for some purpose, but that pride, that idol, will always eventually tear it apart. The seeds of the destruction of any merely human endeavor are sown right in its foundation. The gospel, on the other hand, utterly opposes anyone and any culture that takes pride in itself. The gospel utterly opposes anyone in any culture that takes pride in itself, whether that pride is sexual pride, racial pride, national pride, regional pride, fan pride, intellectual pride, economic pride, family pride, or even religious pride. Jeremiah 9 Verses 23 to 24 says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. 
I am Yahweh. I will do it. Boasting in the Lord is not religious pride, to be clear. Because religious pride is a pride that boasts in a human system, in a human tradition, not in the Lord himself. In the same way, boasting in the Bible is not religious pride, since Jeremiah makes clear that boasting in the Lord means to understand him and to know him. And that's only possible as God reveals himself to us. And the place that we find that revelation about Jesus, about the Lord, about Yahweh, is in his word. We are to boast in the Lord. We are to boast in his word. But we're not to boast about ourselves, our systems, even religious systems. Those who boast in the Lord are those who embrace the gospel of God. Those who boast in the Lord are those who reject the anti-gospel of the world. And the more faithful you are to the gospel, the more thankful you are to the Lord for saving you, the more committed you are to him and to his ways, the more people in this world, people in the dominant culture, the pride culture will consider you to be suspect. Which brings us back to our own culture, to the application for today of this passage. Many in the church are troubled by the blatant celebration of sin and confusion that is Pride Month, and rightly so. But very few see that pride is a remarkably apt name for the culture that now has become dominant in our time, since gay pride is only the most obvious and extreme example of our perennial pride culture, the one which Paul told us all about in his comprehensive statement on sin and what God has done about it, which we know as the book of Romans. His description of the ancient origins of sin is exactly what we are seeing today. It's absolutely amazing. What a vindication of God and his world, despite the sorrow that we feel when we see sin come full circle. Fallen humanity always puts itself in the place of God. And conditions have been getting worse and worse for a lot longer than the last 50 years. Even in recent history, it was about 200 years ago that the Protestant church en masse started to preach an anti-gospel. Pride was no longer considered a problem like it once was. In fact, we made pride respectable. We celebrated self-esteem and stopped our ears to shame in terms that the world could easily get on board with, we still take great pride in our positivity, our progress, and our prosperity, despite the fact that these, in what we used to call the first world, have all been underwritten by unrighteousness, by unfaithfulness, by violence, by ruin, and by destruction of the planet. It's taken about 200 years for that poisonous fruit to ripen. But we find ourselves now very much in the position that Isaiah talks about in chapter 59, verse 15. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The number of people who have died, who died in, through violence in the 20th century far surpasses exponentially the number of people who have been killed in wars in any previous century, cumulatively. 
the number of babies who were slaughtered in their mother's womb eclipses the number of people who have been killed in wars throughout history in the last 50 years. We are at a place in our world where our children are facing unthinkable destruction. And it's because of us. It's because of Christians who have abandoned the gospel and embraced a gospel of progressivism and prosperity and to hell with the rest of the world. Nevertheless, the truth is still the truth, even if it's nowhere to be found. And we know where to find it. We know the truth. The truth has set us free. So no matter what hostility we may encounter, it is still right to do right. The humble always have hope. The proud are the ones chasing phantoms. As Jesus paraphrased our passage in Isaiah, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. But what do we do now? That's the question. And as I said earlier, the answer is dangerous. The final passage, the final verse in our passage offers us the key. I am the Lord, and in its time, I will do this swiftly. This reflects all the other passages, all the other promises in our passage, that God is our salvation, God is our light, God is preserving us, God is planting us, God is protecting us for the display of his splendor. He will make the least of us a thousand. He will make the smallest a mighty nation. He will do it swiftly. But this does not mean that until he does it, we sit around waiting. But what it does mean is that we have the freedom to do his work. We are released, we are unleashed joyfully on the world, knowing that we can expect him to accomplish his purposes, whether or not we see the results. Now here's the dangerous part. It also means that we must refuse to make common cause with the proud. That is, with others who may share the same concerns we have about the world, but who champion their own pride culture, who do not trust in God, who embrace an anti-gospel. We're often tempted to look around and, and see what those people are doing out there who we agree with on certain things. We're often approached to join with those whose pride culture is religious pride or, or political pride or national pride or conservative pride. But that avenue is not open to us, at least not if we want to actually inherit the earth as Jesus and Isaiah promised. So what are the meek to do? Well, first, we need to understand what the, that the word we have translated in the Bible as meekness means. It's not how we typically understand the word in modern English. To be biblically meek does not to be someone who is afraid. It does not mean to be someone who does not act. It does not mean to be someone who avoids conflict. 
No, biblical meekness is gentle strength. Gentle strength. One Greek dictionary describes the meek as those who exercise God's strength under his control. Another calls meekness a divinely balanced virtue. That is a virtue that is balanced by God that can only operate through faith, not in our own strength, not available to those who are not in Christ. People of Zion. A divinely balanced virtue that can only operate through faith since it begins with the Lord's inspiration and finishes by His direction and by His empowerment. The meek, the humble, the true gospel believers are to speak truth in love to our pride culture. The meek, the humble, the true gospel believers are to speak the truth in love to our pride culture. This means sharing the gospel with them in soft but uncompromising ways. And it's likely to make them feel ashamed and then angry with those who feel they are making, the, with those who they feel are making them drink poison. It's likely to make us a target. And one of the current ways that this may work out for you in your interaction with the dominant pride culture of today is the question of whether we should try to use the pronouns that people assign to themselves. And as a courtesy, whether we ourselves should likewise offer our pronouns to others. Now, most of you would know that this is a live issue for those of us who are working in the world of business or the arts or academia or in school and schools all over the place. And so it's a question that I've wrestled with for a couple of years now. Until recently, most of the prominent Christian voices have advocated a policy of what they call pronoun hospitality. But the result has been that our priority has been to maintain relationships over speaking the truth. The hope, of course, being that if you can stay in touch with someone, if you can keep talking with someone, then eventually you'll be able to speak the truth, the true truth to them. Some of you may have heard the name Rosaria Butterfield. She was once a gay activist, but was saved from her atheism and her lesbianism and is now married to a pastor with children and grandchildren. She's an English professor and a teacher and is now a highly respected Christian author. And she was one of those who once, until very recently, advocated for pronoun hospitality. But recently, she and a number of other prominent Christians who were formerly living a gay lifestyle have come out against pronoun hospitality since, as she says, it not only forces you to lie, breaking the ninth commandment, it also encourages individuals to covet a gender identity that is not their own, breaking the tenth commandment. And to be honest, I was initially surprised, not only by her change of heart, but by her courage and by the strength of her arguments. And I've been reflecting deeply on it ever since I heard it, which was a number of weeks ago. And in addition to the sins she outlines, of course, there is also the fact that pronouns are building blocks of language. And they 
reflect our unconscious presuppositions about people, what we think the world is like, who we think that person is. And you've probably had this experience that I've had, many of us have had, of trying to communicate with somebody at the same time as thinking consciously about not using the undesired pronouns, the ones that come the most naturally to our lips. It makes any conversation awkward and difficult and confusing, let alone a conversation where you're trying to share the gospel with someone. So even if it does maintain a relationship, pronoun hospitality seems to me to work against the goal of speaking the truth in love. And in any case, it's unlikely that this gesture will be enough for much longer anyway. The pride culture does not crave accommodation, but victory. The pride culture does not crave accommodation, but validation. Validation, not accommodation. The pride culture does not crave accommodation, but triumph of the sort we read about in Isaiah 60 minus verses 21 and 22. To someone for whom shame is poison and pride is the antidote, any person who believes what the Bible says about gender and sexuality is not only distasteful, they are dangerous. They are someone to avoid no matter how accommodating or polite they may be. Now, I'm not saying that you must adopt my position on this question. I'm simply letting you know where I am in as strong a possible terms as I can. As Michelle bought me the t-shirt, I'm not arguing, I'm just, I'm just telling you why I'm right. <laughs> But I would urge you to consider reading the arguments. You can see the title of the article there and Google it. And there's a YouTube video there too with uh, Beckett Cook and Christopher Yuan are the other two members or, or other two former um, uh, gay men who are uh, in conversation with Rosaria Butterfield on that YouTube video. So I would, I would encourage you, I'd urge you, in fact, to consider reading Rosaria's arguments and to consider for yourself the question of preferred pronouns. Do it this summer when you have time. Do it in the light of the scriptures. Do it asking the Holy Spirit to guide you. And finally, I would urge you this summer to prepare yourself. Prepare your family to face these dangerous times we're living in with grace, not with anger or fear, with humility, not with an eruption of pride of our own, with faithfulness in God's word, spending more and more time this summer in prayer and in the Word, spending more and more hours in worship and in fellowship with the people of God because the temperature is going up. And many of us, those of us who don't prepare, won't survive will not arise and shine, but sleepwalk into perdition. The times are quickly becoming more dangerous for the meek, for those who seek the gentle strength that God only grants to his people, the people of Zion. And also this summer, take time to rest, Take time to trust and hope.
because the humble can hope. And take heart in knowing that at most times and places in history, conditions usually have been like this for God's people. And usually far worse even than this. Because a pride culture is always the dominant culture. And when that dominant culture used to call itself Christian, even then, anyone who insisted on living by the gospel of humility instead of the anti-gospel of pride, anyone who boasted only in the Lord, anyone who refused to bow down to whatever the dominant culture was proudest of, these have always been viewed with suspicion. These have always been pushed to the margins. It was historically in a Christian culture that Protestants were martyred, that those who baptized believers were killed, who refused to baptize infants. And it wasn't, they weren't martyred because of what they believed. That's a bit of a myth that we like to think that we would stand for what we believe. They were not killed for what they believed. They were typically convicted of sedition, which means that they were deemed to be untrustworthy, to be traitors, because they refused to name as Lord what the rest of the culture called Lord whatever it was. Nevertheless, it is the humble who hope. Zion's people are righteous. Our walls are salvation. Our gates are praise. Our days of sorrow will end. This fragile seedling is God's own planting. This remnant will be a mighty nation. The meek will inherit the earth. It is the Lord who will do it. In its time, it will come swiftly. Amen. Let's pray. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We are weary, we are afraid. We don't know how to live in the world. And yet we know that you give us that gentle strength, you give us that joy, you give us that peace. Oh Lord, may every day be an opportunity to waltz through the gates of Zion, singing your praises as we go about our work. May every day be an opportunity to feel the security of the walls that you have erected through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, that the gates of hell cannot prevail against your called-out, gathered people, the ecclesia, the church, Zion, the Kehila. We thank you for your protection. And I ask, Lord, that you would convict each one here today to spend this summer not turning away from these problems, but investigating these problems, preparing ourselves for what is coming, that we may remain faithful, that we may remain the humble who hope. And this we ask and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated just for a moment. You're almost done. As a benediction, I just want to read the second half of James chapter 1. 
And I encourage you to go and take a look at it later on today. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, no setting, no waning. Of his own will, he brought us forth. He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, freedom, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Go in God's grace and read James 1 later. <laughs>